some of you folks back. So uh, always great to see you all. We're continuing our study in the book of Second Kings. And I always find it challenging one way or another. If we're not challenged by the, the names on either side of the kingdom or nicknames, well, if we're not challenged by that, we're challenged by the fact that we'll have a mention of one king, then a mention of another king, and then we'll go back to that first king. So that's what we're going to have this evening, and uh, I'll explain that in just a moment. But as we start, uh, you know, we talked about, and we see so often in kings, some of the kings begin well, but don't finish well. And I almost get the idea as we're looking at Second Kings, it's like you have your favorite team, sports team, and they go out and it looks like they're going to win and they lose. Well, the next time they come out, they do even better, but still lose. And that's the way I perceive these kings. We just saw a king, Amaziah, that started out well. But the last sermon that we preached on was he didn't finish well. Well, now we have his son, Azariah, who also finish, uh, begins well and does pretty good in the middle. Well, I won't tell you what happens at the end. We'll, we'll, we'll save that for another time. But I think you can imagine exactly he too is going to falter. Well, this is entitled Azariah Prospers. And look at all of the scriptures there. So we're going to begin in chapter 14, verses 21 through 22. Then the text is going to talk about Jeroboam, but we're not. Okay, we're going to save Jeroboam for later because I want to get all of this in about Azariah. Then it picks up Azariah in chapter 15, actually verses 1 through 7, but we're only going to cover 1 through 4. And then here we have another king who the book of Second Chronicles has a lot to say and fill in. So that's where we are in this. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings and chapter 14, verse 21. We'll go ahead and read that, and then we'll, we'll turn to Chapter 15, even though there's a king and his exploits in between there, I don't want to break up the, the thought here, the thought pattern. So then we'll go to chapter 15. Second Kings chapter 14, in the middle of the chapter, that's where we're at. And we're going to stop. We're going to stop in the middle of the chapter. But look at verse 21. And we're keying in on Azariah, who is also known as Uzziah. And it seems like Second Chronicles likes to call him Uzziah, and Second Kings likes to call him Azariah. It says, All the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. And then it's going to be talking about Jeroboam II. But let's drop down to chapter 15 because it's going to pick it up. Now, again, this isn't something that's 
just put together. This, this actually has logic behind it. Um, that little mention of Jeroboam is going to be the only mention of Jeroboam. There won't be any in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles uh, will not talk about Jeroboam the second. And so chronologically, he puts it in there, but he saves this big portion in Second Chronicles for Azariah. Verse 1 of chapter 15. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king and reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. That's where we're going to stop because we'll pick it up in 2 Chronicles. Before we go any further, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the detail in Scripture. For one reason, Lord, the detail shows that it's absolutely true. These, these things and these dates can be searched out, and we find out that this is a, a record of true events. But we also thank you for the record of the character of these kings, how it's possible to start out right before the Lord, but not finish that way. Lord, again, we would ask, let us not be of that sort. Let us begin well and finish well in serving you. So, Father, we'll ask you to teach us this evening and apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so I'm going to review, uh, not to make it more complicated, but to make it simpler. All right, so Amaziah was the last one that we looked at. And he also started out right before the Lord. That was in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 3. He was blessed by the Lord and he defeated Edom. But then he worshiped Edom's gods. And as we said before, usually when one nation conquers another nation, they give high tribute to their God over their gods. Well, Amaziah worships their gods. And of course, you know what's going to happen next. Well, he's filled up with pride and he, and he challenges Jehoash because he, he thinks that he, he's beaten little Edom. Now he can take on big, big Jehoash. Jehoash warns him he doesn't listen and Judah is defeated. Amaziah is captured and imprisoned, and Jerusalem is ransacked and even destroyed in its walls and some of its towers. Well, when Jehoash dies, Jeroboam II allows Amaziah to leave and go back to the southern kingdom. However, the people don't want him after what he's done, and they pursue him and kill him at Lachish. And that's where we ended. And it's somewhere in the midst of there, we're going to see Azariah come to reign. Now, 
one of the things that we're going to see right from the get-go is it almost seems as if there's a discrepancy here, that he comes to power at age 16, and yet he reigns for 50-some years. Well, we'll talk about this, because when you're thinking about it, it's how can he reign for that long if he began when he was 16? Uh, and I'm talking about soul king. Uh, in other words, uh, he's reigning by himself. But we're going to see that many times these kings are co-regents. They also share the kingdom with their predecessor or their father. And so that's going to explain a little bit of a conundrum that we're going to look at in just a moment. So look here, if you would, once again, at 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 21. And it says, all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. And then we go to 2 Kings chapter 15, where it says, in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and then it mentions his mother. Well, one of the things that we're looking here is I think it's a problem of translation. When it says that he became king at 16 in place of his father, that would have been better translated as beside his father or under his father's authority. That's the Hebrew word tahat. It means beside or under. It doesn't mean in place of. Well, why would they translate it that way? Well, if you remember, Amaziah was in prison. And so we believe that when Azariah was 16, he was put there beside his father, even though his father wasn't there, although his father was going to come back. Let me, let me just read what someone writes about it, and hopefully this will help clear it up. It says, though the wording is clumsy and confusing, Azariah, and of course he's also Uzziah, his age must be that at which he had first been instituted as co-regent beside or under the authority of his father. And it's not just saying, well, this is my argument. I just got a Hebrew word to use here. There are other usages in the Bible that talk about this word as being under the authority of. So it doesn't mean in place of, and it doesn't leave us with a conundrum. So here's what, what is the solution. For a decade, he reigned in his father's stead while he was imprisoned in the northern kingdom. So while Amaziah was in prison, Azariah, he became the king. And so there was a co-regency there, even though they weren't together. It says, for 15 years, he ruled conjointly with Amaziah, who had been released from captivity. So now he's back and they're together. And then, of course, when Amaziah died, he became 
the sole king. It was a sole reign. It said he would yet reign 27 more years as king in his own right or for a total of 52 years. Uh, One of the reasons why I bring that up is, well, one is when we're studying it, we may say, what in the world's going on here? The other reason may be sometimes we have critics that will pose these to us. And if we don't really know the background behind it, we might feel intimidated and not have an answer and be able to, to really defend our Christianity. So having put that out of the way, let's go back. We'll look at Azariah. Why does he have two names? Well, I don't really know for sure, but one may have been his name while he was with his father, since that's the name his father gave him. And then the other one, Uzziah, may be the name that he took when he was king by himself. So the first name, Azariah, means the Lord has helped. What a great name. And so even if everything else is going wrong in Israel with the kings and spirituality, at least they're somewhat cognizant of the names that they ought to have. It ought to involve the Lord. The Lord has helped. But Uzziah means the Lord is my strength. And we're going to see some of his military exploits upon which he was blessed because he sought the Lord for a time and he did what was right before the Lord in the beginning. In fact, we're going to see some of the major exploits that's written about um, more so than some of the other kings. Um, At this time, uh, we find some prophets. Now, I'm I'm entering into Lou's territory here, but I'm so thankful he brings this up too. But in my reading, uh, there are prophets who are involved with Israel at the same time, Hosea, Amos, uh, because it begins with, it says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah. It says that in Amos, and it also says that in Isaiah. So this is the background. Well, let's look at verse uh, 2 of chapter 14. So don't want to confuse anyone. We're in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 22, and we'll soon be out of it. But notice what it's going to say. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. So it is interesting, the wording there, it's going to add now after his father had slept with his father. So some of that co-regency seems to make sense with the language. And it very well is the idea, why is it going to mention this? Because this perhaps is one of the very first things that he did as the sole king. This is going to be one of the very first things in a, in a line of great events. In one sense, he almost reminded me a little bit of Herod the Great and his exploits and what he did, except (laughs) Herod the Great wasn't really the king of the Jews. All right, so what is Elath or where is Elath? That is in Edom. So we'll take a look here at Edom and Elath. Edom is that southern region. And you remember... uh, The son of Jehoshaphat uh, had shaken off the hand of, uh, let me see if this is the other way around. 
what had happened when Jehoshaphat was there, uh, Edom shook off the hand of Judah. Judah ruled Edom for a time, but now they did not. Well, by him conquering Elath, he is now getting back some of that territory. So what we're finding in the book of Kings, not only are we seeing the predecessors and what they do and the successors and what they do, but we're also seeing the promised land being shrunk and then the promised land being broadened by these military exploits. And we're going to see that with Azariah. But when Amaziah and his son Azariah or Uzziah, when they came into power, they began to pressure Edom and it was this place, Elath, that Azariah was able to apprehend. So if you look at this, Elath is uh, right by the, the Dead Sea. And, and here by the Dead Sea, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, the Red Sea. Uh, it was a seaport of the Red Sea. So it was very instrumental for military to block the boundaries but also, too, they, they were able to uh, trade freely. And so this was a seaport of the Red Sea in this territory. And as I said before, the mention of why this is mentioned, well, it is one of the places that he took. He was now increasing the promised land. And furthermore, it's probably the first exploit as sole king. Well, at this point, we really have to stop because it's going to start talking about Jeroboam II. And it's not going to say a whole lot about Jeroboam II. And it's sad to say that he was correctly named. He was named after Jeroboam I, who wasn't very good either. So we'll return to him at, ta- at a time. But right now, I want to go to 2 Kings chapter 15, where the author is going to pick this up. This, this is really what he wants to talk about. He's going to mention Jeroboam II um, in, in a very few verses, but not a lot. Well, I want to go here because we have a lot to cover and a lot to cover from Second Chronicles. So here we go. So we're in chapter 15 now, Second Kings 15, and we come across those verses that we've already read um, that he was 16 years old when he became the king and he reigned 52 years. And so he probably became king when his father was in prison because of his pride and going against Jehoash, uh, Jehoahaz. Um, we see that it mentions his mother's name and that's a great mention except that this is the only time she's mentioned um, here in Second Chronicles. That's, that's the only time. We don't know much about her. But it says she is... Jechaliah of Jerusalem. So she's from Jerusalem, which is really the heart of the southern kingdom. Uh, That's the city of David. That's the place of the temple. And that's the, the sacred place of all those who are in the lineage to the line of David. So that's probably why she was mentioned. Then we come to verse 3. It says, and he did right in the sight of the Lord. And I want to stop there. So as I said before, it's one of those ones where you're rooting for the king, like you're rooting for your sports team. And after a while, they're doing well, but they lose the game. So just just be glad that you don't 
live in Philadelphia and root for any of the Philadelphia sports teams. I remember one of the quarterbacks said one time that, that he, he was going to change his name to Boo because when he came out to play, everybody booed him and he thought maybe they'd be cheering for him. Also, too, it's a place where there's so much dissidence, there's so much violent fans that they have a, they have a literal court that is open during the sports facility and during the sports games because they take those people who are just too rowdy and put them and put them in the court and sentence them right away. So anyway, you know, in a sense, if their team keeps on losing, can you blame them? If their team keeps on losing, it's just like we feel when we have a king, he's doing well. Yeah, yeah, go, go. Ah, oh, that's how we respond to the book of Kings. So it says he did right in the sight of the Lord, but watch this. According to all that his father Amaziah had done. Well, I don't know if this is meant with tongue-in-cheek or sarcasm or irony, but it's there. Yeah, he did begin well, just like his father Amaziah. But his father Amaziah did not finish well, and neither is Azariah. And then in verse 4, it's going to say what we've been seeing all along. Only the high places were not taken away. So he was doing good, but he left these high places, these places of worship, to foreign gods. Um, it seems like almost every king is doing that, maybe to appease the people. It says only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Well, I, I, I ran across an interesting quote, uh, someone remarking about the high places. And again, the high places are on these hills, our own high places, and these are places of worship of foreign gods from these foreign nations that were there originally. And they were supposed to be torn down. It says, the mention of the continued worship at the high places indicates a state policy of non-interference with competing religious forms that had been in force since at least the time of Joash. Well, just reading that is, is terrible. I mean, there's no interference, no one's stopping them from these competing religions that have been in force. And God said, you get them out of there, but they didn't. This is part of the problem of where they're at. He goes on to say the apparent compromise is indicative of a basic spiritual shallowness that was to surface in the prophecies of the great writing prophets of the 8th century. So their spiritual lives, their spiritual fever uh, shows that it was very, very thin. It was very, very shallow and was hardly there at all, could be even termed secular, um, and the prophets would write about it. So these high places have been a problem, and idolatry has been a problem. And you think, well, sure, you're allowing this to happen, and of course it's going to happen. Well, at this point, we want to turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 26. Um, this is one of those instances where we could say, well, why don't we just stay in, in 2 Kings 
Well, let Second Chronicles go for another time. Well, there's not much said about Azariah in Second Kings, and we're really missing a lot of the detail. We're missing his great accomplishments. Part of the fact that he sought the Lord. In the Old Testament, when you sought the Lord, you followed the Lord, you, you were blessed and you prospered. And we're going to see an example of him prospering in the beginning. And yet, at the end, he will not prosper. He will not finish well. So Second Chronicles chapter 26 And I'm going to begin with verse 5 because verses 1 through 4 basically state just what we've been going over. Well, we come to verse 5 of chapter 26, and we, we see something very interesting, and we also meet a prophet by the name of Zechariah. Now, not Zechariah, the one who authored the, the uh, Old Testament book, Zechariah. It says he... That's Azariah, continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. So let's kind of go through this in the very beginning. So we see Zechariah here, and he's an unknown prophet. He's not the prophet who wrote the book, nor is he the prophet or even the priest who was the son of Jehoiada. You remember that? Um, you had Joash under the tutelage of the priest Jehoiada. And then his son, Jehoiada's son, was Zechariah, who also was instrumental in giving information to, to Joash. So we're going to see that. Now notice that Why do we call him a prophet? Well, it says he had understanding through the vision of God. Now, whether that was more than one vision, we don't know. But what's the point here? Well, in the Old Testament, there were various ways of giving revelation. It could come through dreams. It could come through visions. um, It could come through the mouths of donkeys. It could come through the Urim and the Thummim. But in Hebrews, it says in these last days, He has spoken through his son. So Christ replaces all that and is the full revelation of God. And we have the full revelation of the scriptures now. But back then they did not. And so these prophets were instrumental. And so he would have a vision or visions and he gained understanding. Now we don't know exactly what that understanding was, but we might imagine what it is. Um, it very well could have been the vision of what's going to happen to Israel not far from this time, and that is that the Assyrians are going to come down and conquer them and take them into captivity because of their disobedience. It could be that also in this vision, and not only what's going to happen in the future, but maybe there was a way in which he was able to figure out how to deal with Azariah because he does have an influence on him. It's great when we can have an influence on people, uh, family members, neighbors, friends. Um, It's awesome when we can have a good spiritual influence, and and Zechariah does. Uh, What's going to happen is he's going to continue to seek the Lord, and as long as Azariah seeks the Lord, he's going to have success in battles. He's going to have success in rebuilding Jerusalem. 
and he's going to have success in building up military strength. That's what we're about to see. So verse 5 is, is sort of like a summary verse. It's kind of letting us know. But again, there's irony in here. It says, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. And so he's not going to seek the Lord all the days of his life. And it's also the idea that as long as Zechariah is there, he's going to follow the Lord. But as soon as Zechariah is not there, just like as soon as Jehoiada was out of the picture, then these kings begin to think they're... uh, independent, they can do whatever they want, and they don't follow Yahweh anymore. They don't follow the Lord. And then, of course, what happens? They're not prospered. By the way, one commentary said, this whole idea, when they seek the Lord, they're prospered. When they don't seek the Lord, they're, they're disciplined. He said, that is the theme of Second Kings, first and Second Kings. That is the theme. Well, verse 6 then is going to tell us a little bit about these accomplishments. And he's going to go up against the Philistines, and he's going to do well against the Philistines, and he's going to take back some of the the region that Israel used to have. And it's going to happen on the west side, it's going to happen on the south side, and it's going to happen on the east side. So he's going to broaden this, and so we'll work our way through these verses. So look at verse 6. It says, right after it says, he's seeking the Lord, being prospered by the Lord. It says, now he went out and warred against the Philistines. And he broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. So one of the things we want to point out here is that notice he knocked down the walls. That's what you do back in those ancient times when you had a city that was fortified with walls and towers and, you know, just geological position and location. That's what you did because when you broke down their walls, they really had no protection. And so you would do this so that as a king, you could come in there any time there was an uprising and you could settle it. And you would, of course, ask them to pay tribute. Well, let's just look at these cities here for just a moment. So Gath, Ashdod, and Jebna, they are, these are westward. And they're, especially Ashdod is right along the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the first one they took was Gath, and that was inland. And so it's kind of like a strategy, so you you go attack the closest one. You attack the closest one, and you amass a little bit more strength. And so then he continued on. So he was very successful uh, in these three strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, Gath, that was the farthest inland. Ashdod was directly west of Jerusalem, and it was nearest the Mediterranean. And again, you can imagine you're establishing the trade. If an enemy owns that territory by the sea by which the trade comes in, you're probably not getting anything from that direction. 
And then Jabna uh, was 10 miles farther north uh, between Ekron and the sea. So we, we could say not only did God bless him in his victories, but, you know, God blessed him in his administration, in the wisdom in which he attacked. And, and that's very interesting. When God blesses, it, it isn't just the outcome. It's also how the person thinks. And we, th- we think spiritual blessing, how the person acts. So at this point, he's still seeking the Lord. And then we come to verse 7. And it says, God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and the Mennonites. So this now, this this group is going to be southward, southeast, but not northern. So we're going to see now the the, uh, south area and the east area. Uh, Arabians were living there in Girl Bale. Let's take a look at that, which is also the same town as Basra. And you could see that this is where the, the desert area is and where the Arabians were living. But now the Israel and its boundaries are being increased by the blessing of God upon Azariah. So this is a southward uh, a southward growth. Um, then you have the the Mennonites. They were nomadic people, and it was kind of southeast. wasn't quite east yet, but it was southeast. So we see that over there. And then let's just take a look at verse eight. It says the Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah, and his fame extended to the border of Egypt. And he became very strong. Now the Ammonites, they would be east, as we see here, east of the promised land, east of Jerusalem. So he has now really furthered the boundary and fortified the west, the south, and the east. But he's not fortified the north, which is interesting because that's where the Assyrians are eventually going to come from when they come to take, conquer, and take into captivity the northern kingdom. But notice they pay tribute. Uh, that's what you do when you're under the, uh, the tutelage of a king, the, the uh, auspice of a king. This is what you do. And supposedly it's the idea if you pay tribute, I will help fortify your area uh, if it comes against the war. But you do indeed pay tribute. And we've seen Israel having to pay tribute. And how, how about when Jehoahaz came in and he didn't wait for the tribute, he took the tribute. And we also see Amaziah willingly give it to stop him, to keep him from going more and doing more damage. Well, this is kind of the army and the, uh, the battles that he had. And we can see that God blessed him this way. But it wasn't just abroad, it was also at home. There was domestic blessing. And in verse 9, we see that he's going to fortify the towers that are in Jerusalem. Well, what happened to these towers? Well, you remember when Jehoash came in against Amaziah? And it says they destroyed the wall. 
They did exactly what you're supposed to do in the, the military strategy manual back in that day. And they also tore down some of these towers. And so Azariah begins to build all of this. And notice what it says in verse 9. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the corner buttress and fortified them. So now he is making Jerusalem fortified and stable and able to defend itself against some of these other nations. Um, Just to take a look at these, um, we went through the book of Nehemiah many, many years ago and we looked at the wall as he rebuilt the wall and it became very interesting to us. So when I was over in Israel, that's one of the things I wanted to see. You could see a little bit of Nehemiah's wall. I remember that so vividly. And then uh, also, too, uh, the, the wall around the city of David and around the temple, that was, uh, had been built and then rebuilt and then expanded. But anyway, I, I was curious, as I hope you are, to know where these are. <laughs> All right, so here is one diagram of where this author thinks this is the way it was during this time. Um, The center or the wall to the right is the more ancient wall and the wall to the left is the more present day wall of the old city. But you could see there at the top left of the original wall, there's the corner gate right there. Um, It's at a corner, good name. That's, that's, that's how, you know, we get some of the names here in Wyoming. Um, sometimes it's just a little bit um, unimaginative. Um, but I will tell you this, there's a lot of dry creeks in Wyoming, and there's, there's a lot of dead horse creeks in Wyoming, okay? So a lot of these, and, and dead horse road and all of those things. Um, I, I, there is one that puzzles me. I wonder where Five Mile Road got its name. But anyway, that's for another challenge another day. But here is the corner gate. And then this one shows the valley gate on the east side. And of course, that would be the valley of the Kidron Valley. There's zooming in on it, the Kidron Valley. Well, I probably have no problem with the corner gate. I'm not sure about the valley gate because when we went through the book of Nehemiah, we feel like we... uh, ascertained that the valley gate was on the west side. So uh, we do see that it's very hard to know exactly where the walls were in some of those original places. Some of the places uh, you're able to, to, to figure out, but mostly it's because when it's destroyed, it's covered and then uh, has to be rebuilt. And sometimes it's rebuilt in a different direction, but it could be on the uh, west side as well. Well, again, what's interesting is is it's being fortified to the west and maybe to the east, but it's not necessarily fortified to the north, which is really what they do need to do. Now, I want to just say something about these towers. So you have a wall, this huge wall. You go over there to Israel. I mean, this, this wall is, is very, very high. And it's very, very thick and wide. And you just can't imagine how anyone could tear those walls down. 
But then on top of that, there were towers, and there still are some remains of towers. Um, these would have been towers, high places, higher than the wall. Well, what would have been their purpose? Well, first of all, they would have been observation posts. You can see higher, you can see farther, you can see the enemy coming from a farther distance. Um, it also would have been a place of defense. Um, not only could they fight from the wall, but they could fight from these towers. And then the third area is, is that some of these towers were quite huge, and it was believed that soldiers were stationed there and some of the weaponry was stationed there. So in other words, whoever was thinking of these was thinking, right, we're going to have men and weapons close to the wall so we can defend it in a hurry. We actually see that in the New Testament. Um, if you remember when Paul was being persecuted about being ready to be killed, somebody told the captain who was in one of the towers. And he came out of the tower and saved Paul from being killed. Well, this is the idea then of these towers, and they were damaged, no doubt, by Jehoash. And so they were being rebuilt uh, for all of the purposes that were mentioned. Now, he doesn't only do fortification right there locally, but he even goes out a little further. Look at verse 10, if you would. Verse 10, it says he built towers in the wilderness, meaning the desert area, meaning the outskirts, and he hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock. It almost reminds you of a you know, small picture of Solomon. That's kind of the blessing we see here, although not at the wide scale like Solomon, but he's being blessed and prospered by God because he's seeking the Lord. It goes on to say, both in the lowland and in the plain, he also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Well, as we're talking about these towers and some of these things, this is very interesting because here's where archaeology comes into play. Archaeology has found some of the uh, inscriptions with his name on it and even some of the towers. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says the reality of Uzziah's towers in the desert has been validated by the discovery of an 8th century tower at Qumran. So it would have been even at Qumran and there was a tower. And then uh, the word biblical commentary says, an impressive array of archaeological evidence has been interpreted as reflecting Uzziah's building activity. Towers and cisterns from excavations in Qumran, Gibeah, Beersheba and other sites have been assigned to this period and a seal bearing Uzziah's name was found in a cistern at Tel Bet Mirsin. So this, this is what's so great about this. I mean, we don't need archaeology to believe the Bible, but it should stand the reason if it's true events, we're going to sooner or later stumble across these things that confirm the Bible. It's the same thing with science. We don't need science to confirm the Bible. 
But it is interesting to see that we have many, many groups that are really at the forefront of leading research, ICR. Going to have Randy Galuzzi here, Dr. Galuzzi here in November. We're so excited about that. And it's not that they prove the Bible, but they confirm the Bible. The Bible proves itself all of itself. But this is so interesting, especially when we're in an age of skepticism. And um, uh, we have so many skeptics that come upon uh, Christians and they, they, they give them all of these things, these conundrums. And you know what? There's less and less conundrums because of both archaeology, biology, geology, and also archaeology. Uh, I had said before, and Dave can attest to this, I'd said before, when, when we went to Israel, there were archaeological sites and digs most places. To me, I thought archaeology was old and dead and over. It, it, every time the spade hits the soil in Israel, they're finding something new. And remember, there's a lot that they won't be able to find because in order to go deeper and find more, they have to more or less destroy the archaeological find on the top. But here we have in this great book of 2 Kings, we've seen some archaeological evidence now. Um, I just will say one other comment. You do have these other religions, um, particularly Mormonism, that has these stories, and that, that's the proper term, stories of things that happen even here in the United States, and they've not found one shred of archaeological evidence of them. Not one shred. Not like the Bible, God's word, which is absolutely true. We haven't found everything. Not everything has been confirmed in every aspect of it, but we have much of it. So he builds these towers in these areas. And again, these are towers, watchtowers, but they are also fortified defenses and they are very instrumental in the defense. Well, in verses 11 through 14, we're gonna see him building the military. So not only did his, the military have great exploits, but he's still building it. He's building more. And one just wonders, you know, it's pretty obvious. God has already said, if you continue to serve me and follow me, I will protect you. If you don't serve me and you go after these false gods, I am not going to protect you. And furthermore, another nation is going to come here and destroy you. You just wonder, here's a time of blessing. What if, what if this would continue on? What if he would have continued to stay true to the Lord? Would it have been possible for the hand of God to be pulled back and say, okay, you are following me now. I pull back my discipline from you. Well, we have a lot of scriptures that seem to attest to that. Well, let's take a look just quickly at these uh, military uh, strengthenings and how he's going to do that. Verse 11, he says, Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster, prepared by J.E.L., the scribe, and Masaseah, the official, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. And I just have to remark about this at this time. So there's this leadership going on. 
And he's picking these guys who are the right guys to do these right things and lead. And of course, it is interesting that he has a scribe in there. But you almost wonder if, you know, that scribe who's detailed, uh, perhaps organized, if he wasn't very instrumental in helping organize all of this. He has an official and uh, also has one of the king's officers. And so this great military that they're building up is, is uh, being put together by these, these thinking minds, and, and, it's, and it's working. But we know it's working because it says, when he sought the Lord, the Lord prospered him. Verse 12 is going to tell us that he had 2,600 heads who were over warriors. The total number of the heads of the households of the valiant warriors was 2,600. So that's not 2,600 soldiers. That's 26 captains or uh, generals over them. And that's quite a bit. Verse 13 It says, under their direction was an elite army. Elite, well, that would suggest that there's been training going on. 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. So it's safe to say now that he has indeed built a very big and strong army, even better than what his father um, Amaziah had done. Verse 14, it says, Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields and spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slingshots. And if by chance we would say, well, what can a slingshot do? Remember, they are in the city of David. The same David who killed the giant a slingshot, as well as a lion and a bear. Well, that was also part of the armor that was all there, and they were making it, they were repairing it, and and it was really being built up. This was incredible. Now, we come to verse 15, and I'm going to close with verse 15. But verse 15 is interesting in its translation. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war. Wow, what is that? He made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence, his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Interesting phrase. Well, let's just go back here and let's just figure out what this engine is. Um, so the Hebrew word is chish shaban. If nothing else, it's just fun to say with the rough breathing, chish shaban. And it means a device. It means some sort of an invention, some sort of apparatus, uh, uh, such as a catapult. That's what it means. It, so it was an engine, meaning that it wasn't just men who were doing it. It could somehow have its own force. It wasn't talking about fuel or electric-powered engines. But still, let me read what one commentary says. The description of his machines on the towers to hurl stones had been interpreted to mean devices from which to hurl stones. They were shielding mantles, 
used to cover defending troops as they repelled enemies seeking to scale the wall. For question exists about the use of catapult machines at this time. Well, we do know it. We, we, we're going to see that this kind of stuff uh, come up. But anyway, they, they were able to throw stones, even if it was a mini catapult. It's still an engine, and it's still a device, and it still throws stones. But it says great stones, so it had to be a great catapult uh, for shooting arrows. That's pretty cool. So you could, I don't know how many arrows you could shoot at once. I don't know. We need to figure that out. Come bow season. <laughs> we, we need to figure that out, how to shoot a whole bunch of arrows at one time. But this is the good news, and this is where it stops. Um, I'll just look at verse 16, and it, and it says, but when he became strong... His heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. We'll stop there. We'll pick that up. By the way, there won't be any Wednesday evening service next week, but it will begin the following Wednesday. So there won't be any Wednesday service next week. So you're just going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait on the conclusion to um, Azariah. Well, let me try to make a few applications here. And I, I know that we're touching on some of the same topics. I've even said that before. I'm even repeating this, but that's all right. But as I said, let's just talk about, first of all, seek and prosper. And as one commentary said, that seems to be the theme of Israel and kings, at least, maybe even their whole history. When they sought the Lord, they prospered. When they sinned and didn't seek the Lord, they were disciplined. And we, we find out that Zechariah had a pretty good influence, and he probably encouraged Azariah to do what? Seek the Lord, follow the Lord, serve the Lord. That's why you're being prospered. So it's as if when he comes back and he says, look what happened. The Lord fought for us. Yes, Azariah, that's because you're seeking the Lord and following the Lord. Now, I want to say one thing here, and we've talked about this before. This was an Old Testament concept under the law. If they followed the Lord and sought him, they would prosper as God's covenant people. That is not a guarantee for today. We are not under the Old Testament law. We are not of the Mosaic covenant people, but this is what he had designed for them. So when you become a Christian, there's no guarantee of your safety from persecutors. There's no guarantee of your health or wealth or of your crops. There's no guarantee of any of this because it's not about physical blessing in the New Testament. It's about spiritual blessing. And if you want to know what those are, I've got 33 of them that I can tell you about that we spent the book of Ephesians talking about. So I, I want us to remember that. I want us to remember that, you know, it could cause us to be confused and say, I don't understand. I'm serving the Lord. I'm doing everything I can for the Lord, and all of this is going wrong for me. Well, first of all, all things work together for good. But secondly, there's no guarantee that it's all going to go well. 
And it's easy for us to struggle with that in the United States. Go to some of these other countries where they truly are persecuting people for being Christians. And they, they, they don't struggle with this concept. They understand that, yeah, they're going to be persecuted. Um, they're they're going to be beaten. They're going to be killed. All of these things. So it's not that the Lord's not there and protecting them. It's the Lord is giving them spiritual blessing. Now, having said that, let me also say, I'm not saying that it's all bad either. And I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't bless us. And neither am I saying that if you're following the principles of scripture, that it may go better for you. It may go well with you. That is also the case. It's just no guarantee about it. But there's many times when you follow the principles of scripture, what you're doing is avoiding the principles of evil to which there will be consequences for. And the truth of the matter is, you know, you, you hear when you ask sometimes believers how they're doing, and they say, well, better than I deserve. We serve a great God. He's a God of goodness. He's a God of protection. He's a God of blessing. He's a God of peace. So that doesn't mean that we aren't blessed by him, but we just have to be careful that this seeking and prospering could go all the way back to Deuteronomy 28 when he says, if you seek me, all these blessings will happen. If you stop seeking me, all these cursings will happen, including you will be destroyed by a foreign nation and taken into captivity. So seek and prosper. But if that's the case, then you wonder why Azariah didn't get it more. You wonder why he actually started becoming proud. Well, the second thing I want to say is spiritual influence. Just talking about the spiritual influence of Zechariah. And we do see throughout the book of Kings, both prophets and priests making some headway with the Jewish people in influencing them. Now, it's not always long-lived, but sometimes it is. And it, it, it kind of speaks to us today that, you know what, we may say the same thing. We may, we may see that we're discipling. We may see we're trying to influence. And then, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, it's just, why am I even talking? You know, it's just not working out. Well, that's the wrong way to look at it. Number one, if we're, if we're discipling believers, it's a whole lot different than the Old Testament. First of all, New Testament believers, we have the Holy Spirit. The people that you're discipling, if they're believers, they have the Holy Spirit. And they have the new nature. So there's a, just as much a chance that they're going to serve the Lord and that your influence will work. And, and what, a, you know, what a blessing when we see that. And, and um, you know, and, and if from time to time people may report that to you and say, you know, what you said or what you shared was such a blessing for me. That that really is the, the 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 blessing of the Christian life here this day and age. That's one of the great spiritual blessings. The other thing is, even and if they are a believer and they do stray, they are a believer if they're a true believer. If they don't fully go apostate and renounce the Lord, and there's always a chance and a very good chance that the Lord will bring them back from a backslidden state. There is always that chance. Uh, train a child in the way that he, is, he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. So 
We'll see, we'll see that from time to time. A young person will kind of go astray, but the Lord eventually will get a hold of their life. You want me to give you a name? Franklin Graham. In fact, there was even a movie about him, about what a rebel he was as a young man until the Lord got a hold of his life. And I'm telling you what, I appreciate him so much because he doesn't give he doesn't give an announcement. He doesn't give um, any instruction. He doesn't give an interview without sharing the gospel every time. Hallelujah. And that's Franklin Graham. So uh, they, there's a chance, a real good chance, that they will come back to the Lord. So, so don't give up on your spiritual influence. Uh, keep that up, uh, even if you don't see results right away. Sometimes there are the results that happen after we're gone. Um, you know, when we're not here anymore, people will remember our words. And then finally, I just want to just quickly talk about spiritual compromises. And that is, you know, the high places. And that quote I read, I, I appreciate that quote, but I think it could have been stronger. So when he said the apparent compromise, first of all, I don't think it's apparent. I think it is. It's a real, the real compromise is indicative of a basic spiritual shallowness. Okay, it is at least a basic spiritual shallowness, but it is sin. It is sin. And so I would have, I would have just added that. I just would have said it's the, the reality of the compromise is indicative of the sinfulness and it's going to be confirmed by the prophecies by the prophets. And just by saying that, it is interesting, if you go back and you look at a couple of the prophets, when they're talking about these high places, um, it's very clear, it's not an apparent compromise. Um, now, it may be a compromise for whatever reason, but it's not an apparent one. It's not one that, well, kind of hard to see. No, it is. It's a compromise, and it's sin. So how about in Jeremiah chapter 7 when he's writing to Judah? The northern kingdom's gone. He's writing to Judah. Judah, you still have time. Don't you see what happened to your sister? And he says, For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it, idolatry. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command. And it didn't even enter into my mind. God says, I never even thought of that. And these false gods are causing you to do it, and it's detestable. Therefore, the days are coming. Behold, the Lord says, when it will no longer be Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Wow. So, I think we could have made that comment a little stricter. Micah chapter 1 verse 3 says, For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his high place, and he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. 
could be military places, but most likely it's the high places of the idolatry. So anyway, be careful of compromise. Be careful of apparent compromises. Be careful of spiritual shallowness, which is actually sin. And be careful in your life. Do not compromise, but serve the Lord like David, a man after God's own heart, wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this section of scripture. We have these lessons, Lord. And I I pray, Lord, that these applications will not fall upon our ears in deafness, meaning that, Lord, we take these things seriously. We, we put these things before us. We have principles, Lord, that, that do work, and we put them into practice. I pray, Father, that we learn from the example of these kings. And, Father, we also learn that not only should we begin well as a believer, but we need to finish well as a believer. We will see that when we come back in this study of Azariah. We thank you for these truths, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.